The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. Over the course of this program, we've talked of many topics that define what wildlife conservation means. Today, with my guest Danny Woodley, we're talking about wildlife security, the components that hold up any and all models of conservation on the ground. What is wildlife security and who is responsible for it? Is it communities, rangers, wardens, governments? Well, it's, and we've talked of many topics that define what wildlife conservation means. Today, with my guest Danny Woodley, we're talking about wildlife security, the components that hold up any and all models of conservation on the ground. What is wildlife security, and who is responsible for it? Is it communities, rangers, wardens, governments? Well, it's all of the above in an intricate dance. Born and raised in Kenya, and previously KWS Senior Warden of Savo, North, East, and West, Danny has a lifetime of experiences on all aspects of conservation embedded in his soul. As a warden, Danny understands the both, both the inherent challenges that exist, but also the bigger picture where governance, policy, community needs, and wildlife needs cross paths, from hunting to poaching to the legal and illegal bushmeat and wildlife trades. He also sees the writing on the wall in a rapidly changing landscape and the pressures from a globalized world. Over the past 40 years, he's witnessed both the accomplishments and the loss of species and biodiversity across Africa, and he spent a lifetime addressing these challenges, where we are losing our last wild places and iconic wildlife. So without any further ado, I'd like to welcome Danny Woodley. Welcome, Danny. Thank you very much, Ellie, and hello from, from Kenya. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to have you here. We've known each other a long time. We've worked together through Wild Eyes as grantees, and um, a lot of the work through that you did, and we supported through Savo. And but that that's a bit of a lifetime ago. You've moved on to other things. You worked with Red Plus for a while, and uh, consulting with uh, various agencies and policy making. So, but you have in in your background a wide variety of understanding and actions and working on the ground of what it means to make wildlife security work. So as we'd been talking previously, you had explained to me and over time that there's basically four pillars that hold up what wildlife security encompasses. Um, We're going to get into that, but why don't you first give our listeners just a little bit of background about yourself so they can hear it from you, and then we'll get into what it is that makes wildlife, what wildlife security is and what it takes to make it happen, because it's a lot more convoluted than many people think. Yes, it's been very interesting, Ellie. I was, my family came to um, East Africa at the beginning of last century as soldiers. Um, we left Australia to come to South Africa um, amongst the British force fighting the, the Boers and then came up with some of those Boers to fight the Germans in, 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 in Tanzania, in what is now Tanzania. So basically, the 1914-1915 war is when we arrived here. Um, 
my 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 grandfather was um, part of the uh, veterinary corps for the for you know for Jan Smuts's cav- cavalry unit, and uh, the family decided to stay um, to settle down with the you know with the colonial and you know the British Empire's soldier settlement scheme, and we we stayed and from soldiers we became um, farmers. Uh, we shot elephants, not 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 as professional hunters, but for trophies. We shot my father shot elephants for for for, for ivory throughout the sort of Mozambique, Tanzania, um, Kenya region when game was plenty. And uh, um, you know, b- you know, before he was nineteen years old, he'd shot a, th- a thousand elephants just for their tusks. So right there, you know, right there, I've got to jump in. We can see how much the world has changed and that we also need to remember that most of Africa was a colony of somebody's at one point. So not only do you have that history, but where we are today. So this is a huge shift that you've lived through. That was, you know, the, the, the... Come, I guess when the family arrived with the settlers and with the you know the building of the railway through through East Africa and all that sort of, I guess what was a very exciting development for the for the you know you know for the new colony, and when the railway workers and the soldiers were basically fed on game meat and so these pe- people went out and they subsidised their their, their meagre salaries uh, by you know by. Uh, Shooting, shooting elephants for ivory, and and uh, shooting bush meat to keep the labour gangs fed, and you know, and that's how they survived as they pioneered through the territories. And then well, from there, you, wouldn't you call it living with the land? So we need was. to understand that it, at this point in time, everybody was doing this because, as you said, the game was plentiful. It was a very different world. But but the but the but the arrival of the of the of the White man and his big development projects, sort of what we're seeing today as well, to some degree, um, they commercialised what was otherwise a subsistence survival by the uh, local communities or people you know who lived here previously. The only commercial part of it was, I guess, slaves and ivory, but that's been going on for hundreds of years. And to some degree, I think it probably kept some of the um, um, elephant populations down to a degree. But as soon as the white man arrived and, you know, it's a, it's a, it, 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 you know, it changed the, you know, the, the, the forests were felled for timber for the railways and the game was shot to feed the workers, the immigrant workers. And there was no control. The controls were sort of made up by the, by, you know, by the engineers, by the governors, by the sort of district, you know, district commissioners. And it reached such a stage that eventually they suddenly saw vehicle tracks, you know, all, you know, all, uh, all over the country. They saw wildlife populations going down. They saw, it just got, it just got too much. And eventually the idea of creating national parks, which was sort of areas where game was not being, um, Sort of utilized or shot or you know sort of um, it, it to keep you know to keep it going to keep it sustainable to keep that element of of of, of, of you know of revenue there um, they you know they needed breeding grounds and hence that's how the national parks were created so um, I think you know in in my father's case when the national parks were were created and they required young Young, you know, young people to go in. They inevitably had a, a hunting background, but also they had a, um, a background in the military. So that you know, so the first directors, the first game wardens of these vast areas were were um, colonels and majors, and you know they'd been fighting in Burma, and there's all about law and order and structure. And the assistant wardens were young hunters who'd been sort of sort of sort of eating eating the what you know. The game off the plains since they, you know, since they got their first teeth. So, so, and 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 it was an exciting life. So, so then they moved from that so soldier hunting, and in 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 my family's case, they went into um, conservation, which which you know, which was a a strange one, but it meant that you could wander around the bush and chase poachers, and uh, you know, you know, 
lots of guns and ammunition and cut roads and cut tracks and pioneer and so you know so new territory so much the same but it was conservation it wasn't hunting and it wasn't soldier it wasn't really soldiering well what you've, so, what you've really highlighted is that conservation sort of grew out of a need of seeing things get out of hand like putting in some control as you said in some law to curtail that wild west mentality that everything is here for the taking so it's been over time i'm going to say the last 50 to 100 years that we've defined this conservation with a capital c and and what it contains sustainable utilization um sustainability working with communities incorporating people and wildlife and diversity together so it's been a struggle from the get-go because it sort of um transpired over time as opposed to be suddenly implemented so that sort of brings us up to current day um i'm going to in current day i mean over the last 40 50 years where conservation is found to be a need so which includes what we're going to talk about today aspects of wildlife security and i think a lot of people think that means saving wildlife security for the wildlife but it also means security for people against from wildlife, right? That's correct. There was, there was, to, to, you know, conservation also came through, um, you know, you know, a, a process, um, and that was, you know, these sort of young, up-and-coming, promising, highly qualified military-style uh, people who sort of had the, you know, the wild at heart creating a national park system at the same time that the country gained independence after, 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 you know, uh, after a bit of a, you know, a, many years of being under uh, the thumb. Well, well, after, 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 after a conflict over, over land. Um, and so independence was one. And then, so you had this new, uh, Sort of young country trying to get up and build itself, and and uh, being quite heavily supported by the previous, you know, uh, 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 colonizers, and trying to and trying to break free, and they won their freedom, and you know, and they got it. So basically, it was you know, um, various tribes and oppositions started to try to empower themselves, and empowering themselves meant. Um, normally, and, and, and you know, and it still is uh, to this day, is eco- economic empowerment, and that's when corruption came in, and that's when. So we saw the the I saw as a young man, um, you know, the masquering of the herds, of, you know, you know, between the sort of seventies and eighties. In twenty years, you know, um, the the you know the Savo elephant population, for instance, were, you know, was reduced from sort of close to 40,000 elephants to 4,000 elephants in two decades and maybe 15,000 rhino to no rhino. And so the entire, you know, apparatus, conservation apparatus um, and finance and resources and personnel that were, that were you, know, you know, that were there to protect the wildlife was turned against the wildlife. And it was one of the most remarkable sort of operations, you know, you know ever seen, albeit negative. But nonetheless, you, you you know you try shooting that many elephant, that many rhino in that shorter time, and the same thing happened in Sulu. The same thing happened in uh, you know those were the bad seventies. Those were the bad eighties. And so we came out of we came out of that um, and into what we now call the sort of I guess the present day. You know the 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 the, the, the sort of What's happened in the wildlife sectors as a result of the CITES ban on you know on you know the you know, you know the trade bans and knocking the price out of rhino horn and ivory and we enjoyed sort of fifteen years of you know of peace and suddenly it's kicked off again um, you know the prices have 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 grown again there 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 you know there are new uh, uh, um, places in the world with. Uh, up and coming, sort of never reached sort of you know sort of populations, the Chinese, the Vietnamese, and they and they and I guess quite you know quite rightly have have their traditions and and you know and they want to enjoy the same. 
Um, so that's where we are today. So we've seen worse than what we've seen today, um, but, it, but it was different. It, it, it was almost stoppable in those days. What we have today is we have a massive population, a growing population. We have a lot of, you know, we have arms proliferation, which we didn't have in those days. We, you know, we have, you know, diseases. We have, uh, you know, conflict over resources. And so the, um, the threat to wildlife today is very, very different to what it's been when it was being shot out by soldiers to, you know, to feed the troops, to the professional hunters. Now we're talking about a whole new set of problems. And that's, and that's, and that's you, know, you, know, you know, poaching is one thing. The gun, the bow and arrow, the snare, you know, the ivory crossbow. It's, 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 you know, some of it's subsistence. It's carried out by the poor people who are taken advantage of. They need money, so they'll go and do it. The middle person knows how to get it out. He's, he's untouchable. He, he, you know, he's got fens in high places. He's got, you know, he can cross borders. He can pay his way out of anything. And, you know, and off it goes. Um, and they can, so, and, you know. What you, to, what you to, just to, described is over a very short period of time, five decades, really. Yes. Massive, massive changes globally, which on a country that has only been independent, had to go through growing pains. So what we need our listeners to understand is things have shifted so rapidly in these last five decades from something that worked in the 60s um, when it was tanking back then to an an entirely different landscape today. And that's what we're going to get into. We're going to have to cut away to a little break. So stick with us. Come back after the break because we're going to talk about what all these current challenges mean in this rather short period of time, the effects and the challenges and the issues that it's created. And uh, so stick with us, my guest, Danny Woodley, and we'll be right back. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up, our forests don't grow, our communities go hungry, our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect, it's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. What can you find on Get Real Radio? Well, quite honestly, who you really are. Join host James Robinson each week for a program designed to reveal more about yourself and your world through words of wisdom and profound guests. You'll discover more about the spiritual movement and how it can work with you and alert you to problems you may not be aware of. It will educate, titillate, and enlighten your mind. Get Real Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. This could end up being the best time of your week. Listen for Trust Across America every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in as the show is often hosted by national experts in the fields of leadership, teamwork, management, corporate responsibility, accounting, governance, 
finance, organizational behavior, and sustainability, as well as companies that are applying strategies that are enabling them to be more trustworthy. Your hosts are trusted professionals with years of experience in applying strategies with today's leading organizations. Trust Across America is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. Welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and my guest, Danny Woodley. Uh, We opened uh, today's program with an understanding of how rapidly things have changed in just five decades. And it's important to understand that young people today may not have all this history where what Danny is talking about, this is a a lifestyle that goes back several, several, a couple centuries, and that Kenya and much of Africa has changed so rapidly in a very short time from what we could call the good old days and the safaris of Eisenhower and Roosevelt and the colonial times and building railways to a developed world. It's not a developing nation anymore. It's not a third world. It is has emerged. It's on the world stage. And it's bringing pressures, unprecedented pressures, um, on wildlife and on the people with a growing population. So Danny is helping us understand today all the components that make up that simple little phrase, wildlife security. So before the break, we started getting into some of the challenges and the pressures that we're facing today. And um, once again, we'll get back to these components. There are several components of what Danny terms the four pillars that contribute to wildlife security. And uh, they contain a variety of aspects that I'll bet will surprise a lot of people. So, Danny, why don't you help us understand all these components that make up that sort of innocuous, simple-sounding phrase, wildlife security? Yes. Um, What's happening in the last 20 years, or let's say the developments in the last 20 years have been very rapid. We, we, you know, we've gone from a time where the, you know, the government has changed from, a, um, a, you know, a, a single party state, and it's changed round about the sort of uh, late eighties, early nineties into multi-party state, a democratic state, which means that the, you know, the government needs to start listening to the people. And the people have more and more of a say. And, you know, it, in a dictatorship, in many ways, in terms of things, you know, issues such as conservation, um, and assuming that the dictator's on the side of, 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 of that, you know, you know, it can be anything, but, if, you know, if the dictator has a, has a, has a, has a, a you know, a passion for something, he, he, he has all the power to do whatever he wants to, 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 to ensure its continuation or to its growth. But it changed. Suddenly, the people realized that they could change the government, and the government realized that they had to listen to the people. Um, and new technology came in, the, an industrialization process came in, and the population has grown um, Borders have opened. Um, you know, the, you know, in Kenya today, we see, you know, a population growth of 1.5 million Kenyans a year. Um, so, those good old days, or well, good old days for some, bad old days for others. Um, sort of 50, 50 years ago was a population of 10 million. Now we are treading on 50 million um, with the population of 1 million things. So, so of course, thing, things are changing. There's, there's a, there's a um, threat to the wildlife 
that is more than just the bullet or the or the or the bow and arrow. Um, for instance, we start talking about conflict. You know, human wildlife conflict. The 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 the, the um, people have been settled in in, in in quite marginal areas or areas around protected areas. You know, the national parks and reserves, and they're cutting off migratory routes. We, you know, you know, you know. We've heard these stories before. You know, migratory routes are cut off. Uh, the park is particularly dry that year, so the animals sort of leave the park and they go to where you know cr- crops have been uh, uh, farmed. Um, you know, from 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 a relatively dry pasture or woodland, just on the border, you've got irrigation with watermelons, pineapples. Etc. Etc. So of course, wildlife goes there. People get, you know, um, annoyed by that wildlife because you know because they it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, has a, a huge economic impact on them. You know, a marauding elephant, and the government is not repaying them. The government is not protecting them, and they are not really reaping any benefit from you know sort of sort of from that wildlife. So they take. Um, you know, they take action themselves. They take the law into their own hands and they start poisoning those elephants. They start arrowing those elephants. They start spearing those elephants or buffaloes or they start poisoning the predators, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's, 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 that's one area of, you know, of conflict. But it can also be conflict-related poaching, as in, as in, as in, as in um, the elephants are, are arrowed, speared, poisoned. And then opportunists, or the same people who do that, then take the ivory and sell it. So it's sometimes quite hard to differentiate between conflict and poaching. But, none, but nonetheless, it is conflict-related. And it brings, and the conflict is, yes, it is to do with wildlife, and it can be sorted out relatively easily, but the conflict mainly is um, human-related. It's a... It's, it's a um, Community versus government, or community versus Kenya Wildlife Service. You know, it's a it's a human conflict, or even community versus another community. We had been talking about there's the local residents, and then there's those that are coming in from elsewhere using the local systems, livestock, whatever, as cover. Of course, of course, and that's a you know that's a that's a that's. A big problem, um, you know. Livestock is a is is a contributing factor to 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 desertification, that, you know, that is happening. You know, two two thirds of Kenya falls under arid and semi-arid, you know, lands, and those lands are, are you know are, are, are incredibly marginal. They can't support a lot of livestock. The, the, the livestock has to move, you know, through through seasons. It has to reduce pressure off. The area that it's been utilising during the dry season, and use new pasture that's created by the rains and the provision of water so by the rains in other areas. And so areas have sort of time to recover, and the livestock moves and keeps on shifting. But as soon as you start to get, you know, land ownership issues and national parks get in the way and roads get in the way and people have land, you can't shift that livestock anymore. And so, and the penalties for you know, me, I, I don't need to own land um, to own livestock in Kenya. But if I take my livestock onto someone, someone's land, and land, la- land is very precious to, 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 to the everyday Kenyan. Every, and, and, and every Kenyan wants to own land because he can take a, a loan on it, he can plant it, he can, that's, that's, that, that's his. Um, so the penalties and the, you know, conflicts are pretty harsh if you, if you, if you try and compromise that or force yourself onto it. But what we do have is, 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 is we have public land, and public land is national parks. It's no one's land. Or, as we've been preaching, this wildlife is yours, the national parks are yours. So it's everybody's land, and therefore livestock goes freely onto there. And, of course, one has to be very sensitive to dealing with wildlife and international tourists, and you're talking about conflict, and you need to be sensitive because, you know, <laughs> the, the, you, the, 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 you know the effects of drought or a very dry season. You certainly need to look after your constituents. You well, know, it also brings up. It, pardon me for jumping in here. It also brings up another kind of conflict. Not only the issue of ownership of wildlife, ownership of land, 
and then public land, and where we have a an idea that that public land is for everybody's benefit. Sometimes what happens in areas where you are, let's say Kenya, um, that public land is, okay, it's mine. As you just said, I can bring my livestock in there, but I can also take from there because it's mine. It's public. So there's sort of a, a, a discrepancy or a discord between the concept of what public land means. Yeah? Yes, it's... it's, 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 it's We've got to be very careful. We start talking about things like, you know, the tragedy of the commons. It's a, it's a, it's a. What national parks were originally set aside for was to keep an area that, you know, in 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 intact or in intact state representation of what things used to be, how things could be, how things would be, just as a sort of a display, as a as 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 a as a as a place where people could go and find. Peace and solitude, and see wildlife, and see what what the world sort of used to be, and you know that has been compromised um, on a daily basis now. And you know, and with that livestock comes uh, uh, disease. With that livestock comes you know poisonous predators. With that livestock comes you know guns and conflict and government fighting communities and communities. Enraged, enraged communities because they, you know, because they're not going to live if they if their livestock can't graze. You know, they'll start just burning down tourist camps and they'll start spearing the elephants just out of spite against the you know state. But let me give you an an example. Um, we carried out a we we took the Sarve Conservation Area, the largest national park and I guess conservation area in Kenya. And we use, you know, we put it through a protection area planning framework sort of methodology in sort of coming up with a, a long-term management plan for it. And one of the things that we, because it falls under ASL, arid and semi-arid lands, and therefore we had to identify the key uh, 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 sort of ecological areas. Um, for instance, water catchment forest, uh, wetlands. Uh, woodlands, savannas, categorize them, put them into some sort of order of priority. And of course, as you, know, as you can imagine, Sarva is a, a, a dry area, so, so water is critical to its survival and the survival of its inhabitants. And therefore, rain catchment forest becomes you know, priority number one because it feeds the rivers and the, you know, and the wetlands and the marshes, which become priority number two. And Etc. 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 So you can see how it sort of how you know, so, you know so how sort of how it beats down. But one of the big problems of Sabo, and historically, the discussion of whether to cut elephants or not, and what's the carrying capacity, you know, to an argument that you know you know is thrown back and forth between the South African countries and East African countries. Uh, they have a policy of trying to maintain a, a habitat um, and population numbers, and so. It's a very intrusive form of management, right or wrong. Here, and from the service story, we basically, the country decided that they wanted a hands, hands-off approach, that the, you know, the, 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 nature would move in, there were cycles, and, uh, and uh, you know, things would regulate, you know, the habitat and the wildlife populations would regulate. More of a holistic approach as opposed to every square inch being highly managed, fenced off, and privatized. But, 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 but now, of course, we, have, we, we are fencing those parts. We are fencing you know, the megafauna out of, you know, sort of, sort of fencing it within um, an area. And, um, you know, the migratory routes are cut off. The migratory routes are planted with crops. You know, you know, you know, you know the megafauna doesn't have the megafauna anymore. And so, um, so we said, okay, well, okay, well, let's have a look at this situation. And, and the Southern Conservation Area is forty-five thousand square kilometers, as in areas where wildlife can move. That's national park, national reserve, across the border into Tanzania, where Tony Fitzjohn is, and a couple of livestock ranches that border the area. But when you talk about carrying capacity, let's go into an extended dry season. Let's go into three years of no rains, and let's look at. Each permanent water source with a radius of approximately 40 kilometers, which is about what elephants, buffalo, and larger mammals will range out to before having turned, you know, to, 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 to feed 
for turning on and coming back to water. Now, if we put a GIS map on that and we draw 40 kilometer radius around all of the um, um, permanent water points, suddenly we don't have 45,000 square kilometers, we've got 8,000 square kilometers. And in that 8,000 square kilometers, we have, um, in the, then when we're doing the exercise, um, 13,000 elephant, we have 22,000 buffalo, we have 1,500 hippo, we have 37,000 zebra, we have uh, 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 12,000 eland, we have, you know, um, etc., etc., etc. We also have 1,000 tourists, we have uh, 45 camps and lodges, we have um, over 250 vehicles, and we have 250,000 head of livestock. Now, you start to put those figures into per square kilometer, and, you know, suddenly you'll get an idea that that per, per square kilometer is... is Under it, immense it, pressure. You can't, you know, unless it rains really hard and for a long time in other areas, for the game and the livestock and the people just to get away from that area and, you know, um, and, let it, and let it recover. It won't recover with, with the result that you have a huge die-off and you have a situation where, again, you know, the, you know, the younger, the older the invalided or injured, um, you know, animals sort of, sort of, sort of, sort of die off. And so there's a, you know, a huge die off, particularly with livestock. And, uh, and uh, you know, the game is desperation, starts to, starts to dig up the roots of, of you know, of bushes and grass and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, exposes itself to anthrax and the hippos run back to the river and they die in the river, they decompose in the other hippo pools and the other hippos eat the gut contents. And they get anthrax. So it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, the carrying capacity has been reduced, and you know, it, it's almost like we we don't want to upset the cattle herders and the people because people need to live, and people need their livelihoods to survive. But so what, what, what you've really done is just beautifully outline this this whole simplified concept. If it pays, it stays, and what it, what is paying, what is benefit. Who needs to benefit? We've got a whole lot of people. We've got a whole lot of wildlife in smaller and smaller areas. So the pressure has now become immense, whereas 50 years ago or just even 20 years ago, we didn't have the same pressures. So unfortunately, we got to cut away to a break. This is a fascinating conversation with my guest, Danny Woodley. Um, please look up, uh, my listeners, the, Savo, the Greater Savo area ecosystem. It's a huge area. Danny was responsible for helping create that management plan. So we're going to step away and take a little break and then we're going to come back and talk about um, what are some of the things we can do uh, to address these huge uh, complex intertwined issues. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Here with Ariel and Shia Kane is an ordinary person's guide to modern day enlightenment. This show is an exciting exploration which opens the door to living in the moment. Don't miss being here. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern with Ariel and Shia Kane right here on the Seventh Wave Network. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. 
In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. And welcome back with my guest, Danny Woodley, and Our Wild World. And over the first course of this program, we've been talking about the challenges and the pressures, and we're dealing with Kenya itself, and uh, a little more specifically, the greater Savo ecosystem, and the challenges that are presented under that heading, wildlife security. What we've learned is it's much bigger than we had, we might have originally thought. There's so many parts that are involved, moving parts that are involved uh, in creating wildlife security. So what, we're, what we've learned is that there are immense pressures and threats on the e- ecosystems, these fragile areas, and which contains residents, wildlife, natural resources, and more and more tourism, which bring in not only local development, but further national development. So now we're at a point that we're going to bring all this sort of together and help us understand that it really comes down to available real estate. If the real estate is there, we can rebuild. Problems can be solved, solutions can be found, and we're going to get into some of the solutions that are are at hand. But if we lose the real estate to the point that it's degraded beyond recognition, then wildlife can't move, people can't benefit, policy doesn't work, and you end up with all-out chaos. So, Danny, help us understand a little more of where these challenges are and how we how we maneuver through this complex web of systems. It's probably a threat which is, you know, we, we have discussed poaching, we've discussed pressure onto sort of ecosystems and you know, diminishing resources, creating conflicts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But here comes a big one. Um, as I said before, megafauna needs megaflora. It's a you know, for wildlife to survive and the migrating herds to continue to do what they do um, and move seasonally, for, you know, to relieve pressure in dry season uh, uh, feeding habitats, move into wet season feeding habitats and allow the process of recovery. You know, as, as soon as you stop that pattern, you, um, it's going to have an effect and a long-lasting effect. Now, national development comes in, and of course it's incredibly important for the, for, for the country to grow economically. And we're, you know, we're, we are talking about Africa, we're talking about industrialization, we're talking about huge populations, and it needs, you know, and, and the economies need to grow. And so, you know... That, leads, that leads me to a question. I'm just going to jump in here. Can economies grow, and maybe this will help you or help us understand, can economies grow without the loss of resources? Maybe that's kind of the nail on the head we're trying to uh, highlight here. Can people benefit f- from an economy on a globalized, industrialized scale and still have this sort of mythical, uh, fantastical vision of huge herds of roaming wildlife? 
I think the question there to 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 ask yourself is can a growing industrial nation grow and thrive without a healthy environment no and that you know you know you know it's you know, become incredibly clear here yes we are going through a, a process where we are um, putting roads and highways you know the Serengeti Highway uh, comes out as a very, you know, you know, a big one for the general public. Um, and there's tarmac roads, and there's, you know, the we look into the effects of um, putting, you know, sort of fragmenting forests by putting highways through the middle of a forest, and you expose the edge of the forest to 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 sunlight, and you know, suddenly, 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 game can't cross, and there's no cross-pollination and all, you know, everything else that comes sort of with the fragmentation story. Um, what does Kenya want? You know, what we do know is it is getting drier. I think, I think, I think, I've, you know, we, we know that global warming is a reality. We do have a huge population. We are choking up our rivers, uh, well, at least the ones which are still flowing, um, with garbage and poisons and everything else. If we want to survive really... You know, if we want the the majority of our population to to survive and live a, a semi decent life, um, then we have to invest into 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 water catchments. We have to invest into clean water. We have to invest into land practices which are going to bring the most you know, you know um, economically the most for the people without. Compromising the um, security of the environment, of, you know, on which they rely. And if what about the wildlife? You know, where does the wildlife fit in to that equation? The wildlife, the, the wildlife, can share that land with livestock. That wildlife can share those forests. You know, the, you know, those water catchment areas. The, you know, the the, the the dry lands, the marshlands. But the, the the point is that the wildlife needs to do what wildlife does. And that is, it needs to move. It needs to reduce pressure in certain areas, and we are, you know, we are, we are, we are compromising that. We, 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 we are, we are um, stopping the migration routes by putting massive railways across. We are basically saying, in the interest of national development, it's cheaper for us to land a railway station in Nairobi National Park then land the railway station in the, in the middle of our industrial area because it's going to cost so much to compensate you know, the huge industries there. Well, but isn't that rather short-term thinking in terms of what you just said, that we have to secure um, th- these spaces, these resource, resources for development, but short-term thinking, landing it smack dab in, in, in wildlife-rich water catchment areas, doesn't that just sort of cut off the nose to spite the face, short term? It does. It does. It does. You know, I think the point is that um, if you have, the, if the real estate is intact, largely, as in it is protected to a degree. Uh, yes, the wildlife's been poached up for, for you know, you know, for for for, for uh, meat or for trophies or for anything else. But when the, when the political and social climate changes further down the line, you can always reintroduce wildlife back into those areas, as long as the real estate is there. The problem with national development is that it fragments the, you know, that real estate. It compromises the water, the marshes, the habitat, the migratory routes. You know, um, um, and suddenly your real estate no longer exists. It, it can no longer support the wildlife that you would otherwise put into them. So it, you know, it really comes down to um, very, very careful planning, but, but not even careful planning. One just has to... Start um, now. I mean, if what you're talking about that we can reintroduce, let's put that under the heading of rewilding, when we already have it here, wouldn't it be... <coughs> excuse me more critical thinking and planning as you just said with a combination of people government industry tourism and everything to work now to protect the real estate that's there rather than have to go to the expense of rewilding it all at some point later 
is Kenya is Kenya primed now really in terms of um, what it can do now to prevent having to redo reinvent the wheel that is why um, planning management planning strategic planning is so important because you look at the area you look at the resource you look at the land use and you create um, public utility corridors for national development, taking into account everything that you know that happens on the ground without compromising the very core of that ecosystem. Um, we, are, we, are, we, are, we are moving ahead very, very fast in Kenya in terms of national development. And, and, and a, a case in point is uh, the, the standard gauge railway that's going to link Kampala to Mombasa. Um, and it's a high-speed train. It's you know it's going to be fenced fence on fence on both sides. It's uh, it's uh, going to move traffic through the area far quicker than slow trucks going through. And so it does have a positive effect in the long term, um, but it's also going to cut off quite considerably. Um, you know you know you know a lot of migration needs. So we have to manage that. It's a it's a it's a it's a problem. It's a um, as I said, fragmentation of ecosystems is 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 compromises the 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 area and habitat and, and wildlife populations um, in a in a in a in a long term and very significant way. So what we have now is a modern Kenya. We have a new director of the Kenya Wildlife Service. We have a rapidly shifting wildlife service that went from protection. Uh, to community uh, engagement, to oversight, and we have a, a new president coming up. We have new directors. So Kenya, at this point in time, is really poised and at a place where it can take off and take into consideration the concepts that you've been talking about um, and your colleagues and working with, bringing together the, the public, the private, and the political. Is that possible at this point in time? I think it's in the interests of, 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 of um, you know, protecting the environment for the sake of the people in order for making maximum use of marginal areas that are really only good for um, livestock and wildlife and whatever model that is available to bring in uh, revenue, be it be it, be it be it carbon red, be it hunting, be it concessions, you know, etc. Cetera, et cetera. It does have to be. It does have to be sustainable. Um, when you talk about hunting, let's just let's spend a, a, a minute here. Um, Kenya banned hunting uh, a long time ago. That doesn't mean animals are not dying or animals are not being taken. Bush meat, sustainable killing, um, as we t- began this program. But all that is shifted. So when you say hunting, what kind of hunting are you talking about? I, um, I'm looking at hunting in the same way that I look at, uh, you know, revenues that come in from, from, from you know, through, through various models, be it Red Plus, be it, uh, you know, leasing land arrangements such as is going on around the Maasai Mara, you know, um, you know, land has been looked after by foreign interests, etc., etc., etc. So, whatever model it is, is it's very important that it is sustainable. In that, in that, you know, you, know, you promise something, um, it's taken away, and the, you know the community ends up in the same boat and wanting to marry the next sort of financier. So you're talking more about the conservancy idea, which is a relatively new concept to Kenya. And even going a step further from the conservancy concept and saying, okay, the, the, the government's role in, in, in many areas is more regulatory, and they don't always have policies which favor best practice. They're not always the experts. They are experts at the regulation and upholding the law, and that's you know, and and that's and that's what we know. But in the most, you know, the more promising uh, uh, arrangements are where the expert the, the expertise 
is is a, is a, is is given out. It's a, it's a, it's a, you know it's advertised, and companies with relevant experience and qualifications take take over that role. And so we're talking about a situation like uh, public-private partnerships. You, you know, you know, it's not it's not unreal to imagine that. Um, the government enters into a public-private partnership with a management firm or a conservation body um, to manage its its affairs or to manage its wildlife, um, you, know, you, know, you know, on their behalf, or a community to um, lease its land out to a professional uh, uh, tour operator. And actually, the areas which remain intact in Kenya, is, you know, we've been through a very tough period. You know, a drop in tourism due to due to due to international uh, 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 affairs and lo- you know, uh, you know, and, and, and sort of and sort of local sort of Somali Kenya politics. The Ivory Wars and, and the Ivory Wars and the pressures from you know from you know from, you know from Asia. Um, the areas that have remained intact are areas where you have outside organizations working very closely with the government on the ground, with Kenya Wildlife Service, with the county councils. And there you have, it's a, it's a, it's a counter-check, it's a, it's, a, it's a support program. And I think, you know, it, it's, a, it's, you know, instead of, you know instead, instead of the government whose issues are regulatory and policy related, um, they shouldn't be having to go through a sort of a, a public procurement and disposals process to buy boots for rangers. Their job is to look at um, overall policy and make sure that you know, you know, that the strategic plan is being followed. It's up to other 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 bodies, other organisations, other communities to you know to 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 create the model where the boots are bought and everybody has a radio. You know, so so so. so well, what you what you've just highlighted is the need for public support and not just Kenyan public but the international public where our listeners for instance where your donors donations where your contributions and where your support will do the best good the best bang for the buck government can't do everything and we need these partnerships so in terms of our listeners we're almost out of time here we've got a uh, maybe a minute left but it's up to our, it's up to everybody around the world to participate in this rapidly changing world. It's nobody's in particular problem. It's it's a problem and a challenge we're all facing. If we want this iconic megafauna and we want these iconic megaflora areas and corridors and wildlife to be there, then we all have to participate in ensuring its continuance. Government can do what it does. It has to work with people, as you said. But people outside of Kenya, there is a place for us. And that place is to help support, do our due diligence, talk to people like Danny and other conservationists, and put our contributions to the best possible use. Ellie, it's, it's, as, we, it's as we've always spoken about. It's a, it's a, it's a global issue. We, we breathe oxygen from the Amazon and the Congo forest. And yet we pay tax to our respective governments who do not through who do not contribute towards the conservation of those forests. Clean drinking water, um, you know, wildlife habitats, wildlife populations, it's the same thing. It's a global issue. We want it, we you know, we must contribute. And that leads me right into we have only one earth. If we, all of us, don't care, then who will? So I think you summed it up beautifully, Danny. It's a global issue. It's not any one country, one person's problem. We all have to address it. And unfortunately, we're out of time today. I would love to talk with you again another time. But thank you so much for your time today and this incredible conversation. Thank you very much indeed, Ellie. And we'll be in touch and we'll talk some more. But that's it for today. This is Ellie Weiss, my guest, Danny Woodley, and Our Wild World. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 